BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. Mike Rowe here with a few thoughts on my favorite sweatshirt, a classic zip-up hoodie that used to be navy blue but has since faded to what the fashionistas call a distressed indigo. It's 13 years old. Soft as a flannel bathrobe, and after a few hundred dirty jobs, demonstrably and undeniably indestructible. This is the kind of sweatshirt girlfriends like to permanently borrow, but I've held on to this one because I got it from American Giant. American Giant makes all their stuff right here in the USA so they can control every link in their own supply chain. That matters. Because when you buy American Giant, you not only get great quality, you create jobs for people in factory towns all over the country. No pressure, but if you give a damn about the business of making things in America, you got to support the companies who are doing it right. Go to American-Giant.com slash Mike to get 20% off your first order. That's American-Giant.com slash Mike. Welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham. And once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, a bonafide legend, there's no other way to say it, from the band Bash and Pop, from the band Perfect, briefly from Guns N' Roses, but of course, from The Replacements, Tommy Stinson is on the show today. This is a good one. It's it's brief and a little rough around the edges, but kind of perfect. More on that in one second. But first, if you would like to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham, and he will get the message to me. Thank you, Tristan, for all the hard work you do. You can also find me on Twitter or Instagram at left for Damien. If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is by heading over to turnedoutapunk.com and checking out some of the shirts that we have put up there. Huge thank you to Corey and Demented by Design for uh, helping me put this thing together. Uh, check out some of those shirts and pick one up if you would like to. But really, the best way to support the show is by telling all your friends about it. Just let everyone know that you know that we have this podcast here that we do eh, two episodes a week talking to people about punk rock. You can also support the show by subscribing to it and rating it on iTunes. 
Huge thank you to everyone that does do that. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And uh, also, if you want to support it, you can head over to patreon.com slash punk and check out some of the stuff that gets put up over there. Footnotes, video episodes, whatnot, and huge, huge thank you to people that do check that out. And speaking of thank yous, I got to give a huge thank you to my friends over there at Vans and the House of Vans who have been supporting this podcast for, you know, just helping me cover the cost of this thing for a long time now. And it is very much appreciated. House of Vans, of course, will be celebrating a 10th anniversary this year. There's a lot of, a lot of cool stuff, uh, a plan for it. And, uh, I, I might be involved in some of the festivities. Also the House of Vans in Chicago is back. The Melvins are going to be playing. Oh my gosh. Spring has sprung. I am so happy to be, <laughs> To be potentially going back to a of Vans at some point. I have so much fun at those things. They are, uh, yeah, you, you don't really understand. Like I always said, I loved them and I always knew I loved them, but until they're gone, oh my gosh, you have no idea how much you miss something. And speaking of missing something, the band I play in fucked up. I never thought I'd say this, but I've been missing going on tour. And so we will be going on tour as a band come January. We're going to be, uh, playing, Stuff off David Comes to Life because it's the 10th anniversary of that record. That record's being reissued by Matador. We have Epics in Minutes, our first singles compilation, finally coming out on vinyl on the amazing Get Better Records. And Scotty Karate at Tank Crimes is doing the Year of the Horse double LP. It's 90 minutes long, the song, but I think it's just, uh, it's, a, it's a double LP, three sides, I believe. My gosh, we got a lot of stuff going on in Fucked Up. Check out fuckedup.cc for more information on all of that stuff. Okay, on to today's show. Today on the show, Tommy Stinson is here. That's right. Uh, You you probably are very familiar with Tommy Stinson, but for those of you who aren't, Tommy is, of course, the bass player in the legendary band The Replacements. He was recruited into the band at the tender age. Well, actually, he was already in the band when, you know, uh, the band kind of came together, but anyway, he was in the band from the age of 11 and a half and his journey to adulthood is kind of the journey of this band and a fascinating person who has done so much more than just the replacements in music, obviously, but his role in the replacements, his age in the replacements is just, it, it, it's, it's an unbelievable story. And so when Tristan hit me up and he's like, I got new good news for you. Tommy Stinson's going to come on the show. Uh, we we had to make it happen. So this came together very quickly. We couldn't use Zoom. I had to record it over FaceTime audio. So the audio is not really quite the same as other episodes, but you know, it, it, it turns out you'll hear it. You can hear it, you know, a little rough around the edges. As I say, it's like a live bootleg, you know, we, we like live bootlegs here. We listen to demo tapes and things like that. Uh, in it's, it's shorter. It's on the shorter side, but Oh, it's good. I'm excited for you to hear it. I'm also excited to get my hands on uh, a record that I, I really legitimately love, which is Sorry Ma Forgot to Take Out the Trash. I, of course, have an original, but it is now coming out as a deluxe box set. It's going to be one LP, three CDs, four CDs, four CDs of, of bonus stuff, live uh, live recording demos, all sorts of stuff, an incredible booklet. Rhino is going to be putting this thing out. Uh, if you do not have this record, if you've only heard the replacements later stuff, you should check out this record. This record is different and obviously in keeping with everything they normally do, but this is 
a lot closer to the sort of punk hardcore stuff. Anyway, we talk about this on the episode. You're going to hear all this thing kind of getting rehashed. Uh, but that's it. Pick up this box set. Uh, I don't think I have anything else to say. So sit back. Oh, huge shout out to John Kastner, punk legend, John Kastner for helping make this episode come together. And, uh, don't worry. We've got stuff in the works. Hopefully, hopefully we'll get a chance to talk to John, you know? Uh, but that, that is it for now. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Tommy Stinson on Turned Out a Punk. Tommy, thank you so much for coming on this show. You're welcome. You're welcome. Well, as I, I was just telling you off air, I'm a huge fan. And I think more than that also is you just must have, I find anytime you interview someone that was like a kid in this scene, the recollections though, you know, further away somehow are also a lot more pure. So I'm, <laughs> I'm really excited to kind of hear your take on everything. So thank you again for doing this. You're welcome. What do you got? Well, I got to start this off the way they all start off, which is, Tommy, how did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Um, I guess it would have been when when the replacements really started um, playing together. See, we moved from 36th and Bryant in Minneapolis to 22nd and Bryant, probably after we'd been playing together for maybe a year mm-hmm. um, and that kind of thing. And so my recollection is that one day Chris, Chris Mars brought over Nevermind the Bullocks um, by the Sex Pistols. And I remember my brother having sort of a, given that one the cold shoulder, <laughs> I don't think he was so much into that because he was still pretty much into yes and that kind of thing. Yeah. And then, and, and I don't remember having much of a feeling for it either as, you know, I was just sort of indifferent to it. It wasn't really until we moved to 22nd and Bryant, I went to a new school district and I met this kid, David Roth, who became like my best buddy. And at that point, it all kind of opened up for me in a way because he had been to England already, had a pair of tartan pants at, you know, as young age of 13 or 14, something like that. And had already kind of been introduced to it because of his sisters and stuff. So I, um, Kind of uh, by hanging out with him, you know, came across things like, you know, Generation X and the Pistols and and the Clash and, you know, 999 and all these kinds of things. And some of that stuff Paul liked a lot as well. Like 999, I think, was one of his favorites from back then. But, but um, you know, hanging out with him, we got way into it. And then you know, we're into Clash and all that stuff uh, and all the, the kind of hits of that era and quickly jumped to, you know, Circle Jerks and, you know, Bad Brains and all that stuff as it was evolving. We were already kind of, as kids, I mean, we were already kind of late on the early punk scene stuff, really. But at that time, you know, the the hardcore scene was starting to ramp up pretty fast. And that's kind of kind of what we got, we got kind of thrown into in a funny way. You know, we kind of, yeah. kind of lump, lumped in with hardcore stuff because we, you know, we played our songs probably faster than we should have <laughs> at that point. But that was just the vibe we had, and you know, it was a, it was a genre that we never really fit. Um, you know, we we would play shows with like Circle Jerks. We opened up for Black Flag and stuff, and it was definitely not our scene in any way. I mean. Um, you know, one of the bigger complaints was, you know, 
<laughs> where are all the girls? <laughs> um, you know, that scene had a lot of a lot of dudes dancing in a funny particular way that, you know, it was more of a dude fest than, you know, a girl fest, that kind of thing. Um, you know, and, I, and, and again, again, I mean, that's just a, a funny anecdote about it, but we really didn't fit the aesthetic either. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a we had our ripped up flannel shirts and jeans and stuff like that, and you know there was a little more of a uh, more of a attire that went along along with some of the hardcore bands of that era. Well, that's what I find so amazing about you know the the Twin Cities scenes. Um, you know, like the first wave stuff, even the second wave stuff is like it's really hard to pigeonhole. Like you guys are a lot more melodic on, on mass, but there's also like halos of halo flies and there's willful neglect and all these kinds of like bands that are taking this thing that in other places is very uniform, but you guys are all doing it differently. Like even loud, fast rules on that, that one song that I've heard off that comp. Um, it's, it's amazing. All the different kind of like manifestations of it that was going on in that area. Well, the, the one thing that, um, that I will say about that, and 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 it does play out to be true. I, I really do believe that is that Minneapolis was such a diverse community musically to begin with mm-hmm. at that time. I mean, from Prince to the time to you know Who's Kurdu, um, there were some art bands. You know, there were the suburbs that were a dance band, kind of arty dance band, and there were just a lot of different things going on and. We kind of couldn't help but because we played shows with all these different bands, we couldn't really help but kind of, kind of uh, feed off of a little bit of everything, you know. I mean, we we weren't just we weren't just Minneapolis didn't have just a hardcore scene. I mean, there were so many scenes at once. It's really truly, in my in my opinion, um, one of the great one of the better music melting pots that we ever had in the States to, in general. I mean, you go anywhere in the country, New York, or you go to LA at different periods. And it's just, you know, there's a scene that's very specific to this or specific to that. Minneapolis was really pretty fucking diverse back then. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it really, and it kind of, it, it affected all of us. I mean, we, you know, whether we would like a certain band or not, you couldn't help if you were playing a show with them, kind of go, hmm, a lot of people seem to like these guys. What's going on here? And, you know, kind of con- contemplate it and wonder, you know, and it affected you. Well, I guess going back to that very first wave of bands that were happening, like, you know, obviously you're very young at this point, but like how much awareness was there of bands like the Spooks and the Suburbs and like even the Suicide Commandos, like in general? Well, by the time we started playing, the Suicide Commandos, I think, were pretty much done. I think they'd already broken up at that point. But by the time we were starting to play clubs and st- clubs properly, but um, you know, we we immediately started playing with shows with like, you know, mixed shows with the Suburbs and all these other bands that already kind of had, kind of had their, you know, had a good thing going on to some degree, you know. Yeah. And um, and we, you know, we got a lot of that going on. We had, you know, we were always playing different kinds of weird things with different, different, you know, Minneapolis bands. 
And you hear about it time and time again that there's almost like that's like that first wave of bands, which tended to be, you know, older and artier. And then there's that second wave, which you guys are, you know, as you say, kind of getting lumped in with. But like ultimately, I guess, part of that wave of of young people getting into this and kind of taking up this thing. And ultimately that becomes hardcore and becomes something else. But was there resistance to from these older wave of bands to you guys as this younger group of people taking it differently? You know, I don't rec- I don't recall so much of that. I think, you know, for the most part, it was a pretty inviting scene all around. I mean, it's, from what I can remember, I mean, you might get something different out of Paul about that because he was actually, you know, going to clubs and seeing bands and kind of probably feeling more of it. I only felt what I felt from playing shows when we were doing shows with other bands and, and feeling the, you know, what was coming out of the audience, what was coming out of the, you know, the, the clubs that you know we were playing and stuff like that, and so my my recollection of it is that it was, you know, a pretty welcoming you know musical community kind of around you know across the board. I mean, of course, you had little nick niches of like, <clears throat> you know, the Who's Could Do crowd and stuff. I mean, they were pretty much straightforward Who's Could Do fans, and you know, they 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 some of them would come over our way but none of them really per se were like into like the suburbs and stuff like that it was a a kind of a different thing that way but for the most part i mean it was pretty well pretty well wide open um one of the sort of great documents i think came to light this last year (laughs) during the end of the world was the tulsa jacks demo finally getting released uh, which of course you play on with Bob from Husker Du and and Chris from the Suicide Commandos plays on it as well. Uh, I just wondered, like you, yeah, once again, you're like 14 on that thing, I imagine. So, what are your recollections of that session? Because it is such like a, it's such an incredible document of that scene. You know, I'm gonna be real shoot from the hip here. I have no idea what you're talking about. Really? Is, yes. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. What is this that you're talking about? This Explain to me what it is that I have to get my memory jarred. You know what's so funny? In the back of my mind, I'm like, this must be, like, cause I think this is something that I, you know, originally came across just recording this show, doing research, I think actually for when Bob was on the show. And it's a, a tape called Walter's Vacation that was put out by this band, The Jacks. But I guess it was the lead singer of, the Jacks, Walter, went up to Minnesota for a year and recorded uh, this demo tape called Walter's Vacation with a guy named Mitch on drums. And you play on three of the tracks, four of the tracks, and then there's another couple tracks where Bob plays with Chris on them from the Suicide Commandos. But it's like, it's sort of this like, it's it's awesome. Like, they're an incredible power pop band, but it's this weird document where you have this confluence of these sort of three you know, classic punk bands, but certainly three of the pillars of, of the Midwest scene. Yeah, man, I just, it's, it's escaping me the whole thing. I can't even remember that. I will. I'm going to, I got to make sure you get a copy of this thing now that it's been reissued because you got to hear this. It's fantastic. And who's reissuing it? Uh, Remainder records did it. Reminder records, sorry, did it out of uh, New York and vinyl. And it, uh, it's like, there's a, it's like a kind of like a much more complete collection of this band, the Jacks who did a lot of stuff in Tulsa too, but included on that is this sort of like, for at least my mind, legendary <laughs> tape. Huh. Interesting. There's, and it's also, it's funny cause there's another thing in your discography that I want to ask you about, like another sort of like weird offshoot record that pops up is this Lou Santana Croce. 
Uh, that's probably a terrible pronunciation. Luis Lu Santa Croce. Santa yeah. Croce. Sorry about that. Impersonating a musician. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is that? It's called impersonating a musician. The LP that you <laughs> you play on. Yeah, I mean, he was he was our roadie and our friend back in the day, way back in the day. But um, also, you know, a songwriter in his own right, doing his own thing. He always has. He actually made another record just a few just a few years back that um, was really was really quite a great record. Um, and yeah, no, he was like our, our main kind of roadie guy for a while. It's awesome. He, we so- went in and made some made some women in Blackberry Way and did some songs with him. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great LP. It's like, you know, obviously crazy obscure, and, and I finally got a tape copy of it eventually, but it's... Yeah, man, you're, you're going fucking deep on it. <laughs> well, <that's... laughs> you're, you're pulling out the really extra deep cuts here. <laughs> that's... You'll have to, you'll have to um, pardon me if I don't remember much about the deep cuts. <laughs> well, no, believe me, you're not the first to come on here, and, and I, I'm, I'm afraid with the internet and my sort of like need to dig as deep as possible there's there's really no end to the obscurity that i'll come up with so please yeah i i, right. I mean no offense by uh how uh how, how nerdy this thing gets um okay i was gonna ask you though like was the band originally called dog breath the impediments or the substitutes because i've heard so many different variations of it um pretty much all the above except the impediment i mean i think it was switched off as dog breath i think we went as the impediments um and then we got and the guys got in trouble i was in the hospital for splitting my my armpit open on a picket fence so they went and played a gig um at a sober house got drunk got thrown out and changed the name of the replacements because uh they had feared that (laughs) they would never get a job again we'd never get a gig again uh after that debacle um and so, yeah, that's that's the and the, the other one. I'm not so sure we had in the in the kitty, but it, it's very likely. And what was that kind of early stuff that you guys were playing before uh, you guys met Paul? What, what kind of sound were you guys going for early on? I know oh, once again we you're were, super we young. Were playing, we were playing fucking you know FM radio covers of like anything from Johnny Winter to Yes to you know just all the crap of the day. What was the first concert you went to? Um, I think the first concert I went to was Yes in the Round. <laughs> a lot of people have come on into that tour. was a huge yeah. tour. That was a huge jumping on point for people that would wind up yeah. in punk, I think. Yeah, yeah. What What about the first punk show you remember going to? Well, you're probably playing one, I imagine. Um, yeah, no kidding. Um, you know, it's hard to say. The first punk show I went to probably was opening for said punk band. Um, and that probably was like, you know, it could have been, it was probably the plasmatics. <laughs> what a jump again. The, <laughs> if you want to call them a punk band. <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was probably pretty much it. And then from there, it was like, you know, circle jerks, you know, uh, black flag, things like that. Well, you know, I've read it like, you know, because I've read it over the years in different places that, you know, with certainly with some of the other guys in the band, there was like almost a resistance to like the hardcore music or, and certainly the punk music at the time being like, yeah, we're not really part of that thing. But you're much younger. And I imagine much more kind of like in a peer group age with a lot of these people in these that are younger getting into this stuff. 
<clears throat> well, in, in a funny way, me and David were. Me and David were totally all about it. And more so, I mean, Paul was already evolving away from that. Jesus, even even as we did stink, he was already starting to kind of evolve mentally away from that, I think, because mm-hmm. you can kind of hear it as you get into Hoot Nanny and even, uh, you know, especially Let It Be. Um, you, you could just kind of, you can just kind of hear the, the, the transformation of that. But really, I, the whole early part of that, where we were kind of getting pigeonholed in that, I don't think it bode well for any of us in particular way, because we really thought, we weren't just a one-trick pony kind of thing. I mean, we didn't want to be a one-trick pony. And a lot of these bands were just simply just that's what they do. That's what every song kind of does and kind of sounds like. You know, there's kind mm-hmm. of a whole a whole thing to it. We were, we were more, you know, we goofed around with a lot of different things back then. When you were still in high school, were there like a lot of kids kind of like, it must have been so bizarre, like, but were there other kids getting into punk at that time? Around you? you know, not 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 really. I mean, David and I were kind of we were kind of standouts in that. Um, you know, some of the some of the older kids, like David Perner. You know, mm. David Perner was probably oh, he was he was he was a senior when I was a junior. So he, him and his crew were kind of more, you know, getting into the clash and things like that because. David Roth's older sister was a high stepper. Some of the games that they played and that they were, you know, part of. There, David wasn't really so much of a jock, but I think he did play some sports like hockey. I think maybe possibly, mm-hmm. um, you know, and things like that. But he definitely wasn't, you know, in that jock category per se. But uh, people that were in my and Dave's group, age group and stuff, weren't really into that stuff. It wasn't wasn't happening yet for them. Uh, there's a legendary story that you quit school by playing fuck school. Is that true or is that just a legend? No, that's just a legend. My mom let me drop out of school because I was we were starting to tour more in the summer. And in my tenth, when my tenth grade came up, we were starting actually starting to make money. Yeah. And my mom, my mom saw it as well. He'd get. I'd been getting in so much trouble prior to being in a band. She thought maybe this is a good out for me. And Bobby was there to take care of me and, and that kind of thing. But um, I think she more looked at it as an opportunity for me to get out and, you know, make a living. And, you know, here I am fucking 55 years old. And I've done that. And as a parent myself now, like that takes so much courage of her to do, you know, like I. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because it's it's you're, she she made obviously the very wise choice on that one. But to trust your kid enough and to like have enough faith that they're going to figure it out to like be like you know what you, you can carve a different path because it, yeah. it goes against everything we're told yeah and you know on another hand she probably didn't have much of an option <laughs> yeah, <that's true. laughs> i mean i was gonna do it no matter what i'd already i'd already sucked at school long enough to know that it wasn't gonna it wasn't gonna change i wasn't gonna suddenly wake up and be smart you know uh, academically that is and you know that's kind of how it rolled out yeah. What was it, though, like at that kind of young age being in, like, it's it's interesting, like, um, you know, Steve McDonald from Red Cross was on the show and talked about just how, you know, he got kidnapped by his 27 year old girlfriend when he was 12 years old, like just all these wild stories that happened to him. And then you hear about bands like Old Skull later on and all the kind of fucked up things that would happen to them. Like, what was it like being so young in this scene? Like, was it was your brother protecting you or was this sort of just like a very different kind of like environment 
in the scene you guys were playing in? You know, we <laughs> so, we kind of all kind of took care of ourselves to a degree. I mean, and early on in our touring, you know, I was just, I, I didn't I didn't drink like they did. Of course, we all did certain kind of drugs or whatever together, one way or the other. But for the most part, I really I wasn't a drinker. So when they got hammered at certain gigs, I would get just irate with them. Mm. And really, there was one time that happened where I um, I had called my mom and told her she needed to fly me home. We were in Ohio, I think Dayton. And I had had it. I had had it. I just thought they just sucked. And, and I, I don't want to suck, you know? And so so that happened. My mom didn't end up getting me the ticket. They ended up sobering up and kind of, you know, straightening up their act a little bit. And then as time went on, I ended up joining the party. Mm. Um, sadly, mm. uh, at a young age, and you know, there you have it. Well, it's it's hard to you know, it's hard at any age, right? Like the whole thing is set up to get you to drink. Like the whole industry is set up to make you as a band drink. Yeah, you play in bars, you know. You you know that's it's right there in front of you. All the people seem to be doing it. Yeah, they're more willing to give you booze than food a lot of times on your yeah. rider. <laughs> Because it's cheaper yeah, for them. Easier for them, yeah. <laughs> um, going back to that first tour, what was that like? Because it's, it's, it's an interesting period in, in American music, obviously, because it's pre, well, I guess the scene that you would help usher in, which I guess could be broadly termed college rock, pre-alternative. But it's it's also like kind of in the, the height of the hardcore rules era. Like, So what was the, that early touring like? Like, who were some of the bands you guys were playing with that stand out to you now? You know, we did a lot of a lot of sort of regional stuff like Chicago, Milwaukee, Madison, you know, Minneapolis. We'd go sometimes we'd go a little bit west out to like Iowa City or whatever. But, you know, for the longest time, we just stuck to regional stuff. And then, you know, as the summer, as we started getting a little more popular after that first record, um, you know, the Del Fuegos wrote us a note um, about how they'd love to have us come out there. They'd put us up. You know, and feed us all this stuff. They really want us to come, so we actually booked a little tour to go that way. And mm. Boston was our sort of first home away from home. We got in all the trouble you can imagine on that <laughs> run, that summer of Sam moment. Um, <laughs> it was it was kind of kind of nuts, but <clears throat> they became kind of our first, you know, home away from home friends. And a lot a lot of things kind of changed from there. You know, go to New York City for the first time, things like that. Mm-hmm. I guess that's it's interesting too when you look at Boston because you do have bands like that like the sort of like amazing sort of melodic rock kind of you know I guess thing that's coming out of punk and new wave but then you also have the same time you've got like SSD control and it's like it is almost like the capital of hardcore rules at the same time yeah yeah I mean I mean <clears throat> sorry when I look back at all that Every place we played had a different version of kind of the hardcore aesthetic and what, you know, what bands were doing in it and stuff. And certainly it, it, it was, again, I mean, it's, it wasn't so, a string, it wasn't so stringent, like this is the way this band, this, this whole scene here is, and this way this scene here is in this state, you know, or this, this town or whatever. There, there was always kind of a, a funny thing about it about each place that had their thing and and um you know new york city was more geez more of like a rock and roll town than it was like more of a hardcore kind of thing when we played there i mean it was i mean they're still just you know <laughs> getting over the 
the junkie heroin scene and evolving into something else from that. But <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, yeah. It's it's amazing how regional everything was, like music was in general, like not just obviously punk music, but just in in general, like regional identity and what was popular in different cities and whole genres that. You know, like go-go music only exists in D.C. Like it's a, it's something that's so beautiful about, uh, I guess, the way popular music develops. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally. And how and 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 which places it develops. I mean, you got to remember back then, you only really had college radio to disseminate any of the any of the music, mm-hmm. and that was and that was just sort of in its you know, maybe just coming up in its infancy when we were starting out. Um, you know and. You know, we, we you know the only way you could get that is you had some hip college radio kid that found cool stuff. You know, yeah. No, it's amazing how important these like unpaid DJs are to the history of music. Like, you know, uh, having having people on from well, I, well, I had I had on uh, Miles Copeland, and he was talking about the police being broken on college radio first, and that's the, that was the way they got into America. Right. Right. Yeah, you know, probably, probably to an extent, totally. Yeah, um, I was going to ask you, what was it like working with Tommy Ramone? It was, it was interesting. I mean, he had a whole way of doing things um, that we hadn't done before. That was interesting because you know he was obviously it was our first Warner Brothers record, and he was, you know, came from the Warner Brothers camp to some degree with the Ramones and all that. But um, it was, you know. It was interesting and kind of odd. I mean, you know, he was mixing everything to headphones, which I thought was weird, and everyone else did as well. Um, but you, you know, uh, you know, he was he was way past the punk rock scene by then, as far as like probably even what he was listening to on a daily basis. Yeah, you know that kind of thing. Yeah. He already he was already kind of an, an older man and stuff, and doing his own thing. Yeah, his last show in Toronto, he played with his bluegrass ensemble just before he passed away, and it was uh, it was still amazing. But it definitely, you know, it's 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 interesting how you know it's it's a very long life, and people you know tend to get associated with very particular parts of their lives, even if it's not reflective of the whole thing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, well, yeah. back to making that the case with yourself, um, I guess going looking at uh, the Saturday Night Live show. Uh, that, that, you know, stands out as one of the most memorable performances that's, you know, ever happened on TV for punk music or, or you know, alternative music, whatever, larger terms. But, uh, you know, it's also, you know, you're one of the few bands that ever got banned, you know, and granted, like, I guess shit got fucked up from what I've heard. But uh, I, I just think it's so shocking that, like, of all the things, you're still the band, like, that got banned. Like, is that, do you think that's still in effect to this day? Well, I don't know because I know Paul's played on there before. Yeah, uh, with, uh, yeah. you know, post replacements. But um, yeah, I don't know. You know, I, I can't. I can't really say. I, yeah. Well, well, the reason we got banned from that, I think, probably had a lot more to do with the fact that Her- that we unwittingly let Harry Dean Stanton get drunk in our dressing room, <laughs> and he was the host. I mean, we didn't know that he didn't have he didn't have booze on his writer in in his dressing room so when he came down to our room and was being social and asked if we could have some you know vodka or whatever it's like sure help yourself you know and then he hung out in our room for a while 
and then you can see it when the show starts. He's you know he's slipping, getting up those stair the up the ladder to get to the where the band is playing, so he could play harmonica. We didn't know we were not in, involved in in what his deal was with that scenario, but apparently that was the deal. They were trying to keep him sober, and um, you know he ended up in our room, and then we end up you know screwing off in our own particular way. But I don't think it was just our performance. Yeah, nope. banned from there. It's amazing how important that thing was, though, and that performance is, you know, because it was, you know, like a lot of times, short of this college radio stuff we're talking about, this stuff wasn't played on the radio. And like from the B-52's performance to Devo to Fear to yourselves, like this was a lot of people in in places that didn't have punk scenes first exposure to this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Sure enough. I wanted to ask you, you've mentioned, uh, I think on the Mark Marin interview, like your friendship with Keith Morris, like, was that going back to those circle jerk days? Yeah. I mean, shoot, we, you know, we'd play with those guys and, you know, had our, had our ups and downs with them in a particular way over the years. I mean, he would jump on stage with us when we'd play LA and be just kind of hammered back in the day and, you know, just kind of make a mess of things once in a while. But, um, you know, when when I moved to L.A., he was sober, and I would run into him all the time, and he'd be, you know, he was a whole different guy then, and, and um, you know, uh, a whole different guy that had the same, <laughs> same aesthetic, really. Um, but it was, you know, it was a funny thing. I've known him forever, and, you know, saw him enough in L.A. that you could call us friends, you know, that kind of thing. I think Perfect's like a super underrated band. Have you ever thought about doing anything else with it? Not really, because um, one of the gentlemen has passed. Oh, sorry. Dave, Dave Phillips. Yes. He passed from cancer last year. And, you know, I did. we did that band. We tried to make that happen. That record almost never came out. And then finally, by the, by the chin of our chinny-chin-chin, chin, it finally got released. And, uh, you know, it was a moment in time, mm -hmm. just kind of, kind of like Los Angeles was 20 years moment in my time of my time, <laughs> you know, uh, what about with uh, bash and pop when that started getting going? Was that like, uh, was, did you, was it intentionally something you wanted to do something different than the replacements or like, how was your, what was your approach when you formed that? More, more my approach was I didn't want to go be a solo artist. I wanted to be a I wanted to have a band. Mm -hmm. I like the band aesthetic more than just like, hey, I'm Tommy Stenson. Um, and that was when I first did that. I really thought I like the band vibe more than, you know, just hiring some guys or whatever to play whatever I tell them to play. So um, that's what that was meant to be. It didn't work out so great because of the musicians I had were like the Steve Foley was a great drummer. The guitar player was, was, was okay on some things. Um, and not great on others. And um, the bass player, who was the brother of the drummer, was just not not really useful uh, to make the record. Mm. So it kind of came down to like, okay, this is how we got to do it. And you know, still wanting it to be the band aesthetic, I kept the band the band name. Um, cut to cut to making the last Bash and Pop record that one actually turned out to be more like what I was setting up to be in the first place, which was, it's a band record. Uh, the Clark soundtrack is something that comes up time and time again. It was actually a big jumping on point for myself. Do you remember how that was put together? Like who, who approached you about that soundtrack? 
For what soundtrack? Clerks, the film. Yeah, um, yeah, it was this kid that worked for um, for Colum- Was it Columbia? Yeah, maybe Columbia. Yeah. What is what is his? I'm blanking on his name right now. Benji Gordon. Okay. He um, he was the one putting together the the music for it, and um, and so you know he you know we'd see him around, and he you know he. You know, thought about putting our song in there, and and the guys liked the replacements, and like you know, their fans, whatever, to some degree. So it worked out. Yeah, it's 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 one of those soundtracks that I think is just uh, you know, like it it was like you know, wide enough release. It was such a huge movie. It kind of changed cinema, I guess, when it came out. But also, that soundtrack was just once again like a, a real eye opener. I think to a lot of people that didn't necessarily have access to this stuff. Right, right. Well, I, that's I, that's a good that's a good point. I mean, it was it was fun enough for us. We felt you know, kind of part of it in a way, and uh, it, what we didn't stick out nearly, you know, as as much as we would have in other things. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did you stamp any of the copies of Stink? We stamped probably the first five thousand of them. Oh, <laughs> um, hand stamped. Might have even been more than that, as I as I think about it. But at least the first five thousand, I think we hand stamped all of us. Yeah, because I think the, and our friends. Yeah, I think the press runs ten thousand in total, in or something like that, which is wild to think of making like a potato stamp to do that with. Yeah, it was it was something. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's funny when you look at the replacements. It's almost like do you ever look at it as as you know because what it was you're growing up through it like the band is almost like. Uh, you know, can be understood as your coming of age. Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, that was kind of where we, uh, we kind of, you know, pushed the hardcore button away. Yeah. You know, it was kind of when we started, really when I think when Paul started kind of evolving into a, another, 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 you know, another level in a way. Because, uh, you know, the stuff right after that was, had a lot more, a lot more melody to it. it wasn't all fast and furious and all that per, per se it feels like that scene that you guys are kind of coming out of hit that point early on too where like obviously there are, are still hardcore bands like you know blind approach and all these stuff that goes on throughout the 80s but it feels like a lot of the bands like soul asylums yourself like obviously the the, the power's still there but it, it it became something different there and i guess the whole country eventually follows yeah 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 well, this has been an incredible thrill, Tommy. And anytime you want to come back on here and talk about any of this stuff, you know you're always welcome. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it, man. You have yourself a swell rest of your day, and uh, we'll be chatting down the road. Thank you, Tommy, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Tommy will be back at some point in the future for another episode. And, and Tommy has a brand new solo record coming out next year. So hopefully around that solo record, he comes back on the show and we get to talk a little bit more coming up down the line though, on this show on Friday, my friend, kind of my new boss, because I'm on her label after all from the incredible get better records from here's the amazing band from the amazing band, Jenna and the pups, Jenna, Pup will be on the show. It's a fun conversation, and I am very excited for you to hear it. That'll be coming out on Friday, but that is it 
for today's show. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives of Indigenous peoples matter. We need to protect trans kids. We need to help trans people protect themselves and stop hate and violence towards Asian people and people of different faiths and just just knock out all this this fascist bullshit because because the end of the day like the stuff i'm talking about here these aren't political issues these are just human rights issues people just want to be free and deserve to live their lives as free as possible and it just it sucks that we live in a world where other people will impose i don't know their their own insecurities their own hang-ups their own problems their own issues on other people and and make their lives harder for them you know so it should go without saying, in addition to all this, we also support people's rights to choose what to do with their reproductive systems. Because, uh, once again, that's not a political issue. That's just a freedom issue. There are political issues. There's lots of political issues to talk about. Stamps, post offices, roads, they're important issues. They are definitely important issues. And I definitely am very much strongly supportive of the post office. Fund that thing better. Let's bring down those postal rates. Speaking about things we could speaking of things we could be doing, make make your own culture. Start a pay, start a band, start a fanzine, start a podcast, do whatever. You don't even have to put something out in the world. Just draw a pitch for yourself. It'll help your mental health to create something, to make something. And also this scene, this culture runs on people's contributions. So you might be sitting on one of the great contributions, you know, you might be sitting on the next uh, twin tone records. You might put out the next replacements. You know, who knows? Uh, sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come looking for those organs, you don't need them anymore. You don't. But something that I found I do need is meditation. I found it very beneficial for me. I didn't believe in it. Uh, and, and maybe you, you're in the same boat that I was in. Try it. Try it a couple times and maybe it'll work. Who knows? But that is it. Thank you everyone for listening. Uh, stay safe. And I'll see you on the next episode. Oh, remember, check out turnedoutapunk.com for your shirts and, and patreon.com for your bonus content. If, you, if you've got money burning a hole in your pocket, I mean. If you, if you don't, save, save that stuff. You don't, you don't need to spend it here. If you don't have a lot of it and you need to save it, save it. I wish someone had told me that about all these records I'm surrounded by. Okay. <laughs> see you on the next episode. <laughs>